0: Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast.
1: Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 351. Brendan and Tim are joining me today on the podcast. Guys, how are you doing?
0: Very good. Happy Friday. Yep. Doing well.
1: Interesting story that actually surfaced with David Einhorn, who was years ago interested in buying the New York Mets as kind of a venture capital deal. But he, uh, in his quarterly letter to investors, he talked about, he actually talked about a, a, a local business here in New Jersey, uh, hometown deli. Uh, it's located in Paulsboro, New Jersey. Now, if you don't know where Paulsboro is, it's in Gloucester County, and actually, if you're in Gloucester County or looking at the map, it's directly across the Delaware River from PHL.
0: So this isn't the deli that uh, Tony Soprano and his crew hung out at? No, it not no. Satrial, so It's not Satriales. There you go. <laughs> No,
1: very far from there. It's actually, uh, I don't know how close it is to to the river, but on a map, it's directly across from the Philadelphia Airport, which is south of just south of the city. But it has
2: a market cap of $100 million.
1: A deli.
0: It's got folding chairs inside.
1: A deli. (laughs) So this deli did $35,000 in sales over the last two years, not even one year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it was closed from March 23rd until right after Labor Day last
2: year for COVID. So they had six months where they weren't even open. During that time, while they were closed, the price of uh, of the company of the sh- of the stock went from three dollars and twenty five cents a share to nine dollars and twenty five
0: cents a share, which on a percentage basis is insane i'm not sure why this company even has a publicly traded stock but i mean you can you can make that happen if you want regardless of the company or the sales that you do or or whatever and that's obvious in this case yeah Um, that was one
2: of my first questions i was like how is how is this deli even like a, a traded company or why? That's
1: a that is a good question. I don't really know the answer to that. There were people, uh,
0: people did this though, which maybe you could speak to with like shell companies in like the dot com bubble. So I, I, I wanna just speculate that it's something similar to that.
1: Well, in Godfather Part Three, I'm kinda going off on a tangent here, but they came up with this this script. The Corleone family sold all their interests in uh, the casinos And they were going to bail out the uh, Vatican by buying their 25% ownership in some big corporation, Immobiliare. And uh, it became a way for them to kind of launder their money and make make the business legit. There were a lot of shell companies that came out 20 years ago in the dot-com era. Even before that, in the mid-1980s, there were a lot of stocks listed on the pink sheets, We'll get to that in a moment. But there were a lot of stocks that were listed on the pink sheets. And the only information you could find out was that they were a shell corporation. Today, they're not called shell corporations. They're called SPACs, which are, correct me if I'm wrong, special... Purpose acquisition. Special purpose acquisition. So basically it's a shell corporation that they're raising money for. It's a black
0: box with like a public figure slapped on it to say, give me your money and I'll buy something good with it. You know, as if the market. Mystery re- box.
1: Yeah, the mystery <laughs> box. As if the returns from the market weren't satisfactory, now we have to come up with this, basically the third generation of venture capital. Just give us your money. We'll figure out a way to make this work.
0: We talk about this a lot with investments that are not just regular old publicly traded companies of, you know, reputable quality. Maybe you've heard of them, uh, you know, or market caps larger than this. But I don't know, the the idea that like if if something needs to go public via a SPAC or a shell corporation, why do they need your money? Right. Because, if it, you know, there's and obviously there are going to be examples to the contrary. But in most cases, if this thing were any good, they wouldn't need to ask just randos to fund their company they would they would have backing from somebody somebody better
1: there's absolutely no way that you can value hometown deli on a per share basis the the reason why the company's balance sheet has 2.2 million dollars in cash is because they sold shares last year wouldn't you you know yeah. if you, yeah this stock came out in 2019 at a dollar it traded between a dollar and a dollar and a quarter, which it had no business, as you guys just said, going public, but as the stock went up last year, they sold more shares. I would do the same thing and put the money in my pocket. There's yeah. only 60 shareholders in the whole company.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But again, why is a deli in Southern New Jersey going public? That's really hard to explain, but you know, in this world where we talk about GameStop at three and $400 a share, makes no sense of a stock trading at that kind of level for the business that they do, why would a deli be any different? It's now got a hundred million dollar market cap.
0: I think people are just kind of getting sucked into this whole narrative of like, it doesn't, No, nobody's, it's obvious that nobody's looking at like the balance sheet or the, you know, the earnings of this company or anything like that. They're just watching the stock price go up and saying like, why am I not, in on this and then they get in and a lot of these like meme stocks or whatever we're calling this group of nonsense these days uh, is just fear of missing out. And so people are piling in and I don't think they're going to have a good time.
1: I think this is as, unfortunately, I've used this phrase a couple of times now, especially in the first quarter of this year, these things are going to end in tears. It's going to be bad. Uh, And I just, Unfortunately, I've seen this script a few times over my career where this is going to end very badly for people. It's almost, you know, they a lot of times they'll refer to it as the greater fool theory. Like, well, I'm just going to buy this stock and hopefully sell it to somebody else at a higher price. It almost becomes a game of musical chairs. So sooner or later, you're going to be in a stock, one of these penny stocks or over-the-counter stocks, very thinly traded, and the music's going to stop, and you've got no one to sell this to. And you bought, you know, hometown
0: deli at $13, and now it's back to a dollar. Sorry. Not to come off as, like, galaxy brain, Brendan or anything, but, like, I think there may be a fundamental misunderstanding of the idea of stocks like this having a low dollar cost per share and then being, like, cheap, as in, like, cheap as in air quotes, like, like a good undervalued investment. Yeah. Because the price of a stock has no bearing whatsoever it's what the business underlying it does that adds it adds into that equation to make it undervalued overvalued you can have a stock that's trading at $2 a share that's blatantly overvalued because they do nothing yeah they gross $35,000 a year in sales yeah <laughs> so it's not cheap the lottery ticket mentality kicks in there where it's like well if i can just buy thousands of shares of this $2 stock and if this happens to be the one that continues going up to 100, the one of the needle in the haystack, let's call it, if, if it's one of those, then I could get rich based off of nothing. And it's just that whole idea that the Buffett of, speaks about, about how nobody wants to get rich slowly. Yeah. We all want it now, we want it to be fast. I like. Listen, I get it. I. It would be great to wake up with 100 times profit in a week.
1: Sure. You know, In a, in a certain way, this is kind of It's venture capital on steroids. I I think you'll hear a pitch from a venture capital fund where they'll say, hey, over the span of a period of time, we're going to invest in 100 companies, really 100 projects. 96 of these 100 projects are going to wind up going bust. They're not going to work. Two of them are going to be okay. The other one or two that's left are going to skyrocket the returns might outweigh everything else that's out there on the table. But venture capital really was reserved for people who could afford to lose that kind of money, not be the primary part of your portfolio or your net worth. I just see a lot of gambling and a, a ton of speculation going on. It's a little scary.
2: It's also venture capital without like the research you know because that's what's going on now i feel like venture capital firms don't just pile into something that they don't understand like there's they're buying they're buying
0: like a 10 20 stake in a company not just like 100 shares of some two dollar penny stock right yeah
2: yeah so like the the concept of yep of like the success rate is is the same but yeah I, i feel like it's just vc without any sort of research or understanding of what they're buying
1: yeah unfortunately they're the, the idea that you mentioned a moment ago, Brendan, about, you know, why shouldn't I buy this low price stock? Uh, I've been fighting that now for 35 years uh, yeah, in, just in calls w- with folks. It,
0: it literally will not go away, and I understand yeah. it's never going to. Yeah. It's just there is no connection whatsoever between a stock's yeah. true value and, and its dollar per share. That mm-hmm. is meaningless. That's why stock splits.
2: Exists because like, you know, people are like, oh, this it's marketing. This it went from a thousand dollars now it's five hundred dollars. I can buy more of it. It must be cheap. Yeah. Well, you be. know,
1: we should after the the podcast is over, I'm going to go back and and look at what Citibank is trading at on the pre reverse split that they did in two thousand nine. I can't remember if it was a five for one reverse split or a ten for one reverse split, but that was a th- Citibank three dollar stock okay if you go back to where it was that stock hasn't really done very well in the 10 years since or 12 years now since then so you're still down a lot look at um aig same thing they did a gigantic reverse split these are two stocks that were in the dow yeah it doesn't
0: stocks stock splits and reverse split None of that is like bullish or a reflection of the underlying business or anything. It's marketing and they do it because it's marketing and the people who decide to make the stock split know that it's marketing and they do it anyway, even though it has no bearing whatsoever on the underlying business.
1: Maybe I've missed a few, but it's just my, it's just been my experience uh, that reverse splits are really bad, uh, that they rarely work. They rarely work out for the existing shareholder, someone who's being now reversed into a smaller position. Let's segue from talking about hometown deli where you should definitely try the pastrami.
0: I'm sure their food's great. Yeah, yeah.
1: and uh, now talk about the pitfalls of day trading. We did a video on this about two weeks ago. I guess someone at the Wall Street Journal subscribes to our YouTube channel. Uh, because we did a video on this two weeks ago. Today, it's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, where people are getting their taxes completed, and they're discovering that they owe a lot of money in capital
2: gains. I mean, it goes hand-in-hand with what we were just talking about. It's these people that are, uh, I think Brendan said it before uh, we turned the mics on, that if you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. So if you... Day trade into oblivion last year in, in twenty twenty, now you're left with a mile long tax form
0: and potentially a lot of capital gains that you have to pay. Right. Yeah, al- also, don't forget to take the uh, tax bill that you have and subtract that from whatever whatever your returns were beforehand, right. to get to your after after tax return, which is what you actually eat. And uh, a lot of that matters. A, a lot of mutual fund managers and and professional money managers. will will tell you that the after-tax, after-fee returns are what kills them. Uh, On a gross basis, they might look a little better versus their benchmarks, but we know that after you account for all that other stuff, the majority of them can't beat their benchmark either. And I think that a lot of individual investors that believe they do outperform on a regular basis are mistaken because they just don't know how to calculate the returns properly.
1: Yeah. So what Brendan's saying is, if you're investing in a fund, you also have to take into account what taxes you're going to pay when that investment gets sold, and any fees that have been assessed along the way.
0: Right. So you should do the same when you're day trading your Robinhood account or whatever it is in individual stocks. 100%. I think a lot of people maybe read these stats about mutual fund managers and think maybe like they're the problem, but I just think that actively trading your stocks is not a good strategy overall, whether you're managing other people's money or just doing it with your own account yeah you're not gonna out you're not you're not gonna outperform
1: yeah i I think that's actually a a a very important topic we could spend more time on i I think people just don't really understand well i you know the example that we used in the video was uh someone started with thirty thousand and they made a profit of forty five thousand good for them so their account grew from thirty thousand to to seventy or seventy five thousand dollars that's great, but the guy also owed. in taxes because he didn't understand how to match his cost basis when he goes to sell. I know that when I was studying years and years ago for the Series 7 exam we had to know what versus purchase means. It's an old phrase, nobody uses it anymore but basically what it means is you're identifying which lots you're selling. So if you bought 100 shares three different times at three different prices, you could go in and depending if you want the gain or loss or a bigger gain, uh, you could say I'm selling today the 100 shares that I bought first or I'm buying I'm selling the 100 shares that I bought you know at its low price or its high price or whatever. You can go in and identify those lots. Um, they've tried to simplify things a lot in the last 10 years by saying you can use, you're permitted to use the average cost basis. It doesn't really help you if you're an active trader.
2: Yeah. And they said in, in the article uh, in the Wall Street Journal how a lot of these apps like Robinhood and there were a couple other platforms that they don't allow you to identify which lot uh, not that I think that there are – I think the majority of the users on the platform don't even know what we're talking about to begin with anyway. Right. Um, but There's no
0: guarantees that would actually improve their results either.
2: Right. Also true. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, even, even if may, it was available – It may not.
0: Yeah. You, you could do all the – specific lot trading you want but it might not make your after-tax returns any better it might improve them a little bit if you if you heated like wash sales and things like that but for the person who owed eight hundred thousand dollars in taxes that's a negative return no matter what even though they thought they more than doubled their money uh you know from the start so they didn't do a very good job no (laughs)
1: yeah want to talk about someone who has uh recently passed away in prison
2: this week uh bernie madoff died in jail i think he was serving a 150-year prison sentence. I think he had like 139, 139 years left. Obviously, he had the Ponzi scheme over a decade ago. You know, we we did a video on this as well this week, but we just, you know, wanted to expand the conversation a little more. I think looking back, how do you think Bernie Madoff actually ended up helping investors and advisors?
1: I think the way that it helps uh investment advisors like, like our firm, it made crystal clear that there is a distinction between brokers who have custody of the assets and advisors who do not. He had two firms running side by side. One was um, BLM Securities, and the other one was uh, Madoff Investment Advisors. I may be messing up the names, but he owned an investment advisory firm, and a brokerage firm. And he never clearly disseminated when a client's money would come in, where the money was going. And so it became pretty easy for him to just start, you know, cooking the books in terms of making up these statements. Uh, and he went to, to great lengths to keep this uh, a big secret and until it finally unraveled and what really what really ended the the gig for him was 2008. When the market started falling apart, everyone started calling up saying, I want, I want my money back or I want some money back. And unfortunately the way a Ponzi scheme works is, I take in your money and I return it to Brendan who gave me money a couple of years ago. And then I find the next person and I bring their money in and I pay Tim, I pay you back or give you money and that's kind of how the ponzi scheme works the the way the story unfolded it appeared as if he first the story was that he hadn't done trades in five or six years and then it was well maybe 10 or 12 years and i know that i've said on a couple of different podcasts that i don't think he ever made a trade i mean going back 30 years or more impossible to prove now especially that he's now deceased. Um, We'll never get the full story. But one of the very positive points that came out of this, in addition to everybody learning about custody, is that most of the investors got a lot of money back. So they were able to pinpoint, I think Irving Picard was the trustee who was uh, basically given the the task of going out and trying to uh, claw back a lot of money, he was able to identify that there were uh, $17 billion missing, uh, and they've been able to claw back or recover almost $14 billion. I, I know that these people have not had use of the money and the, the market's done fantastic since 2008. But on the other hand, these people are getting most of their original capital back in a, at a time where they were told 10, 11 years ago, they were not going to see another dime. None of that money was coming back. So uh, I would expect that there'll be a couple of people who, who don't appreciate that comment, but it, it really is spectacular that they've been able to recover as much as they recovered because normally in these Ponzi schemes, uh, when the whole scam gets uncovered, the money is, can't be clawed back uh, it's, and it is gone. So it really is pretty remarkable what's what's happened here.
0: I think overarching theme of, uh, you know, easy to point out in hindsight, but uh red, red flag for me is somebody promising market returns without market volatility. Scam. I, well, I don't know exactly how it will be a scam or how it will disappoint you in the future. It doesn't have to necessarily be a Ponzi. It could just be somebody being dishonest. I'm just using this as as a reminder for folks that, uh, market returns, volatility is the cost of admission. If if somebody's promising you to somehow miss those or, or not have them and still reap the upside, that you should be uh, very, very skeptical, yeah. at least.
2: Uh, well, that's going to wrap up episode 351 of the Maluli Asset Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode.